Hello and welcome back to Legendary Africa, the podcast that retells African myths, legends, and lore for your personal pleasure. Hmm. Got a bit creepy there. <clears throat> so, what's new? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. No, he didn't. Oh, honey, I don't know. It sounds serious. No, but seriously, I hope you all are having an excellent day or night wherever you are in the world. Maybe with a nice cup or something, or like snuggled up on the couch with a warm blanket. Before we get into today's episode, I want to wish my very good friend Dustin a wonderful and brilliant birthday. Happy birthday, Dee. Thanks for being a wonderful friend and for constantly supporting me and my pods, even though you're halfway across the world from me. I hope today is spectacular. Dustin hosts a very special pod called Sandman Stories Presents. It's a favorite of mine, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it too. Today's story is from ancient Egypt. It's kind of similar to the Sleeping Beauty story, actually. Well, only in one respect, but hey, whatever. The story is all about a prince who fights against a prophecy, his brave wife, and their faithful hound. Once upon a time, a pretty long time ago, the afternoon sun shone harshly down upon the great lands of Egypt. In one particular kingdom, the bright rays of the sun filtered through the upper window of a grand palace, where a woman lay, shining with sweat, in the middle of childbirth. Her attendants murmured soothing words to her, one holding her hand, another mopping at her brow with cool fabric. The physician nodded at one of the attendants, and kneeled before the bed, hands at the ready. The attendant grimaced, and turned to the woman, who was squeezing her eyes shut in pain. "'My queen,' the attendant said in a calm, steady voice. The queen's eyes flashed open. "'It's time to push.' Several long and painful hours later, the pharaoh stood leaning against the huge and ornate wooden doors of his queen's bedchamber. His chief scribe stood opposite him, peering worryingly at his king, and wincing at the screams emanating from the bedchamber. I am sure the queen is perfectly, the scribe began, but was cut off by the pharaoh, who put his hand up in irritation. Do not reassure me, Nebamun, the pharaoh said, gritting his teeth as another scream echoed out. After a few hours of doing so, it begins to sound insincere. The scribe grimaced and fell silent. Suddenly, there was a resounding silence, and the pharaoh's head shut up, his face white as terrible thoughts entered uninvited into his mind. Then a cry sounded of a different sort. The pharaoh gasped while the scribe raised his hands up in quick prayer. The heavy doors of the bedchamber were thrown open and the physician strode out, bowing to the pharaoh as he came to stand in front of him. The child? asked the pharaoh, trying to keep his composure as well as he could in front of the many servants who now stood, peeking into the chamber. There was a brief moment of silence, and then the physician smiled. A son, my king. You have a son. The pharaoh swallowed as relief shot through his veins, and a great smile forced its way onto his face. Then his heart clenched. My queen? he asked, his voice rough with sudden anxiety. The physician, still smiling, swept his arm towards the chamber. The pharaoh leapt into the bedchamber, his eyes instantly alighting upon his wife and newborn son. The queen sat reclining in her bed, her attendants fussing round her diligently, and in her arms lay a small bundle. 
His little face relaxed and fists still clenched. Their son stood peacefully against his mother's chest. The attendants, glancing at their king, bowed to both him and the queen, and left the room quietly, shooing away the rest of the gawking servants. The doors clicked shut, and the sound made the baby stir. Opening his dark brown eyes, he blinked up at his mother curiously, and then let out a small but clear gurgle. The pharaoh started at the sound, and then, with a tentative smile, approached the side of the bed, glancing at his wife. The queen gave him a tired smile, and nodded for him to sit next to her, before gently and carefully passing their son to him. The pharaoh held his son to him, as if he were the most fragile and most precious thing in the world. And for this king, he was. For the pharaoh had been praying and wishing for a son for many years. The baby blinked, eyes drawn to the gold circlets which sat tightly around the king's arms. My son, my heir, the pharaoh said, voice thick with emotion. Your name shall be Kuanatan. Soon news of the prince's birth travelled far and wide, reaching the ears of the magical folk who dwelled within the kingdom. Formal invitations for the royal presentation of the prince were sent out to the most powerful and influential fairies. On the day of the presentation, many of the fairies and noble magical folk gathered in the hall and around the prince in his crib, ooing and eyeing at the little boy who stared up at them with wide, shocked, but interested eyes. But soon the crowd parted to let the oldest and wisest fairy through. She made her way slowly towards the crib, and peered down at the boy. The pharaoh watched her eagerly, for it was known that the old and powerful fairy had the great gift of prophecy. The queen, however, grew worried, as she noticed the fairy frown, her mouth drawing into a thin, grim line. "'What do you see, wise sorcerer?' asked the queen, her words instantly silencing the whispers and murmurs that had, moments before, full to the grand hall. The fairy was silent for a few moments. He is a beautiful boy who will be strong and brave. But alas, it will be cut short, for it is written in the books of fate that he must die, either by a crocodile or a serpent or by a dog. The crowd gasped, and many of the nobility looked worryingly at their pharaoh and his queen. The queen paled and lifted her son into her trembling arms. The pharaoh gripped the flail in his hand tightly. Is there nothing you can do to stop this? he asked, looking at the magical folk gathered around. The wise fairy sighed. If there was something we could do, we would have done it already. What is written must come to pass. We can only hope that your boy will find a way to charm fate. That evening, the pharaoh and the queen sat together in silence, both staring at their son as he slept. They could hardly believe that their son, the baby whom they had prayed for, was destined to be ripped away from them, and they didn't know when or what they could do to stop it. As he sat there, the pharaoh felt a flame of anger alight in his belly. Which god had ordered fate to take his son away from him? And was he supposed to simply sit there and allow it to happen? The pharaoh slammed a fist into his open palm. The queen raised her eyebrow at him in a silent question. 
He reached across to his child and gently touched his little fingers, making Kuanatan murmur and shift. We cannot simply sit here. We must protect our son, he said, softly but firmly. The queen sighed and took her husband's hand. I agree, but how? This is Egypt. Crocodiles, serpents, and dogs are plenty, and we cannot lock him up and monitor him constantly for his entire life, she said, smiling despite everything as Kuanatan stretched and blinked his eyes open, instantly reaching for his mother. A soft smile crept onto the king's face as he watched his son suckle. Why not? I am Pharaoh. I can have guards assigned to him to watch him all day and all night, he said, but the queen gave him a sad look. You know you can't. How will he grow? What happens when he marries? He can't have guards looking over him every second of every day, she said. The pharaoh heaved a great sigh. I know. But we must try, or he will not grow and have a life at all. And with those words, the pharaoh began to set into place measures to protect his son from a cruel and unfair fate. He sent for Master Boulder, whom he instructed to build a separate smaller but strong palace above the pharaoh's palace, up on the mountain, and reinforced it against all creatures and unwanted visitors. He sent for a full staff and many caregivers to take care of his son, and his queen spent much of her time there, while he split his time between his son and the royal court. The guards placed at the castle were some of the most loyal guards to the king, and were under strict orders to never let Kuanatan out of their sight, no matter the time or circumstance. For some six or seven years, Kuanatan lived in this place, and never left even for a few seconds. He did not mind so much as he had his mother with him for much of the time, and many servants were amused and fed and played and cared for him. And, of course, his father would visit and stay for some days, spoiling him with gifts and doting over him, despite his mother's protests. He would train in the courtyard with his guards, study with the royal tutor, and secretly play with some of the servants' children. The palace was surrounded by tall stone walls, a moat, and a single drawbridge, which separated the palace from the path which took you down to the royal palace. One day, while Kunatan was training with one of the guards, he heard a barking noise, and breaking away from his trainer, he ran to the edge of the palace walls and leaned out, peering down at the drawbridge, which was currently down, to allow supplies of food to come in. His trainer ran after him. Another bark rang out. Down there, Kuanatan shouted out and pointed down at a small and slender furry shape that was darting in between people's legs and around wagons. What is that creature, Nefakara? The trainer squinted and then laughed. <laughs> that is a dog, my prince. Usually they beg for scraps, and that's why it's among the wagons of food there, Nefakara replied, leaning his elbows on the wall as he looked down. Kuanatan was fascinated by the creature and leaned far over the wall to try to see it. Nefakara grasped the prince by his belt and gently pulled him back. The prince turned to him in great excitement. Do you think mother would let me keep one here? He asked, and then paused thoughtfully. Do dogs like to stay with people? He added. Nefakara nodded. Some do keep dogs as guard dogs or as companions, but... The trainer broke off as he remembered the bearer's command. Neither the crocodile, the serpent, nor the dog must be allowed near the prince. You shall have to ask the queen and the pharaoh, my prince. Only they can allow such things, Nefakara said, taking Kuanatan by the shoulder and steering him back into the palace. A day later, the pharaoh came to stay, and they were all sitting in the gardens together when Kuanatan piped up while playing with these wooden figurines. Father, 
If Akara and I saw a dog by the drawbridge yesterday while we were training. It was so delightful and it ran so fast. I want to see if I can outrun it. Please, can I have one? He asked, turning towards his father with glossy eyes and a small pout. His mother sighed and shook her head, but waited for the pharaoh to speak. Hmm, said the father, torn between the warning of the pharaoh and his son's pleading eyes. Son, do you remember that prophecy I told you about when you were younger? He eventually said. Kuanatan nodded. Well, continued the pharaoh, it spoke explicitly about a dog harming you. I don't think I can allow one near you, he said, wincing as tears began to fall from his son's eyes. The queen fixed him with a steely gaze before turning to her son. Konatan, his name rolling off her tongue sharply. The little prince sighed and turned towards her, back straightening and pout disappearing. But his eyes became even wetter as he stared up at his mother. The queen hesitated as she looked down at him, and then quickly cleared her throat. <clears throat> now, Konatan, she repeated. You know the dangers of such an animal, given the prophecy, and so she trailed off as Konatan sniffed and blinked away more tears. She grimaced and then sighed. And so if you were to have one, it will be trained to perfection, and you must learn to discipline it. Or else, she said, ending in a grumble. Konatan's face lit up as he leapt into his mother's arms, ignoring her protests as he planted kisses on her face. The pharaoh gaped at her for some moments, and then let out a roar of laughter. So much, he cackled. So much for your stiff upper lip, darling, he chuckled, slapping his leg in delight. His wife glared at him as she hugged her son back tightly. Why don't you shut up, darling, she said, through gritted teeth, glaring at her husband who just let out another loud laugh. Kunatan drew back and laughed as his father ruffled his short hair. You listen to the queen now, son. You must wait until at least ten before you get the dog and if Akara will supervise you whenever you're with it, until I decide it can be fully trusted, the pharaoh said, as Konatan nodded enthusiastically. And so, on the morning of the prince's tenth birthday, a servant arrived with a puppy, which looked so much like the dog Konatan saw, that he clapped his hands in delight when the servant brought it in. The queen held her son back by the shoulders and gazed suspiciously at the animal. He was a bit chubby, as a puppy usually is, and it waddled slowly out of the servant's hands and towards them. It was a mixture of light and dark grey, with a white chest and underbelly, and there were some brown streaks in its long, furry ears. It finally came to a stop in front of the queen, and tilted its soft eyes sleepily up at them. Kuanatan squealed with excitement and leaned towards the puppy, wriggling his fingers eagerly. The queen raised a sceptical eyebrow towards the dog, but with a glance towards her husband and Ifukara, the guard, she set her son gingerly down and warned him again about being careful. The little prince hastily nodded, and then slowly stepped towards the puppy, kneeling down and putting out his hand for it to sniff, as Nefakara had instructed him. The puppy sniffed his hand curiously, and after a moment's hesitation, licked it lazily, before letting out a small yawn. Konatan sniffed, and quickly wiped away some tears. I love him, he whispered, carefully stroking its soft fur. The puppy perked up at his voice and began to lick his face and jump on him. The pharaoh and the queen relaxed slightly. What will you call him? asked the pharaoh. He should have a good, strong name as a future pharaoh's dog. Go out and thought for a while. Ramesses. The pharaoh thought it over. Hmm. It's not bad. And so every day, Nefakara would train Kudnaten, and then he would train Ramesses. 
and then he would supervise the prince and his dog as they trained together. After a few months, Ramses knew how to stay and go, halt and fetch, and responded well to his name. By the time Kuanatan had grown into a strong young man of seventeen, Ramesses knew how to attack anyone or anything that threatened his master, and guarded Kuanatan day and night. Nefakara was finally satisfied that the dog could be trusted, and that Kuanatan knew how to handle him, and so the pharaoh gave his son permission to go about with his dog without Nefakara. But by now Kuanatan was at a restless age, and often wished to see the outside of the palace and explore the world. So one day, he held an audience with his father, and asked him to allow him outside of the palace. The pharaoh, his eyes wrinkled with age, but still as sharp as ever, gazed at his son who knelt before him. Father, I know of the prophecy, I understand the risk, but I am living a useless life here, Kuanatan said. I have learned all I can from Nefakara's careful teachings, but I grow stagnant, and will not be a capable ruler this way. Let me go out and face my fate, for I much rather die out there fighting instead of locked inside being idle. He finished and waited for his father to speak. Ramesses sat next to him, still as a stone. My son, began the pharaoh. You have shown yourself to be brave, strong, clever, and loyal. And so has Ramesses. Perhaps you will charm the fates, he added in a low murmur, his face drooping slightly with sadness, for he knew that if he allowed his son out of the palace, he would not be able to truly protect him. Go. Take the weapons you have trained in, take Ramesses, and I will send Nefakara and a few of the best guards with you. Kuanatan bowed his head in thanks, moving forward to clasp his father's arms tightly in gratitude. His father squeezed his son's arms back, showing surprising strength for his age. Be safe, son, and return soon, the old pharaoh said. Kuanatan bowed his head to his father's feet before leaving the hall. The queen was waiting in the courtyard for him and knew already what he came to tell her. So, she said, patting the wooden seat for Kuanatan to sit next to her. You're leaving the den, she said, never one to daddy with her words. The prince nodded, running his fingers soothingly through Ramesses' fur as the dog lay beside him. The queen hummed in response. I knew you would, she said. I always thought you would grow restless. You're too much like me, she said with a soft smile. Kuanatan took his mother's hand and raised it to his lips. I will be careful, and I will have Nefakara and Ramesses to keep me safe, he said, trying to assure her as he saw the worry in her eyes. Hmm, yes, they are all good, especially this one, she said, reaching down and scratching Ramesses behind the ear. The dog relaxed slightly and leaned into her hand, but his grey eyes remained ever watchful. I believe you will beat this, my son, she said turning to look him in the eyes, her own blazing with determination. You have conquered one part of your fate already, she said, motioning to Ramesses. You will overcome the others. Go, with my blessing, she added, taking her son's face between her hands and bringing her lips to his forehead. Thank you, mother. I hope I will find a wife to guide me as well as you have guided father, he said with a small cheeky grin. The queen chuckled. <laughs> if you're lucky, she said, playfully sweating the side of his head before reaching into her robe and pulling out a golden band. She secured it around her son's upper arm, and tapped the symbol of an eye dangling from it. The eye of Horus will protect you, and my spirit goes with you, his mother said, before drawing her son into a tight embrace. The prince blinked back his own tears, and buried his head into his mother's hair.
As the sun rose the next day, Kuanatan, Ramesses, Nefakara, and five trusted guards set out on a ship which carried them across the river and into new lands. On that side, seven glorious black stallions were waiting for them. The prince, Ramesses, and his guards mounted up and rode off west, headed to a neighbouring kingdom. Kuanatan laughed as they rode faster and faster, with Ramesses easily keeping pace and letting out joyful barks as he went. Nefakara and his guards remained stoic as usual, but they were relaxed in their saddles as they flanked their prince. After many days and many nights, a large kingdom came into view. As the half-asleep guards at the gate waved their party through, Kuanatan frowned at the scene which faced them. The city was in a state of disrepair, and the people were mulling around aimlessly. The king, who ruled over this kingdom, did not much care for his people, though he heaped riches on his own palace and daughter. He had just completed a special section of the palace for his daughter, which had seventy windows, each seventy feet from the ground. Instead of seeing to his royal duties, the king spent his time coming up with riddles and absurd challenges. At the time the prince arrived in the city, the king had just sent out his royal heralds to proclaim throughout the city and neighbouring kingdoms that whoever climbed the walls of the prince's palace could claim her as his bride. The princess, although no one had yet set eyes on her, was renowned for her beauty and intelligence. Some of the palace's servants also whispered amongst each other that she had beaten her own royal guard in a fight. All of this made the princess very attractive and mysterious, and many princes had already arrived in the city to compete for her hand. When Kuanatan arrived, he quickly made friends with the other princes, his humble and friendly nature easily charming them, and they soon invited him and his party into the house that the king had given them. After a bath, he sat and conversed with them. Where do you travel from, friend? said one prince, as he took some dates and figs from a bowl. And tell us of your father, that we may greet you in the proper manner, said another, sipping from a small golden goblet. But the prince was careful about revealing too much, and answered, My father was a horse-master to the king back in my country in the east, and after my mother died when I was but a boy, he took another wife. At first she showed me care and consideration to win my father over, but after she brought my siblings into the world, she cast me aside. I soon fled, lest she do me harm. The other young men clipped their tongues in sympathy, and shook their heads in sorrow for their new friend. They soon moved the topic of conversation away from families, to avoid hurting Kuanatan's feelings any further. One day, Kuanatan was talking to the princes about the contest for the princess. All day we tried to climb these walls, trying to reach the princess's window, but none of us can make it despite being the strongest youths in the land, they explained to the prince. Kuanatan frowned and watched as the other princes climbed up the wall, only to fail at different points due to the large windows the king had installed. All that day, the prince observed the other princes climbing the walls, noting where the most difficult places to climb were, and scouting out alternate paths. Then the next day, confident that he had the entire wall mapped out in his mind, he joined the others to climb. Slowly but surely, Kuanatan climbed and climbed, gripping each rough projection firmly and confidently. One by one, his companions fell out of the race, but the prince chose his path carefully and did not rush, knowing that he would make it to the princess's window. At last, Kuanatan hauled himself onto the windowsill, and all his friends below cheered, though they felt both admiration and envy in their hearts. Nefagara smiled in approval at the young prince, while Ramesses let out a triumphant howl for his master. 
They watched as a slender hand, heavy with golden circlets, reached out and drew the prince into the room. They all roared in delight and began dancing in celebration, while one of the men set off immediately to inform the king. The wall has been climbed, the young man called out, his loud voice ringing through the palace. The wall to the princess's window has been climbed. The king emerged, shocked that his challenge had been overcome. Who has emerged victorious? he asked the man. Which prince am I to call my son-in-law? Not a prince at all, my king, but the son of the royal horsemaster from the eastern kingdom. And though not of royal blood, he is as worthy in nature, only travelling from his kingdom to escape from the evil intentions of his stepmother, the man added. But this angered the king greatly, for he did not think that anyone but a prince would dare compete for his daughter's hand. Flying into a great fury, the king bellowed out, Let this man return to where he came from! The king swept his arm out furiously, sending drinking vessels crashing to the ground. I will not have some exiled lowlife for an heir, he cried out, spit flying from his lips. The young man cowered in fear, and with a shaky bow, fled from the palace and raced back to Kornathan. Meanwhile, the princess was regarding our prince with kind and thoughtful eyes, one eyebrow raised slightly. Kornathan stood near the window, feeling awkward and nervous. He had been trained in many things, combat, natural arts, rulership, and diplomacy, but he had not been instructed what to say to a princess. Seeing his discomfort, the princess allowed herself a small smirk, before waving towards the seat in her room. Please sit, my prince, she said, taking up a seat on her bed. I don't bite, she added, dark eyes twinkling playfully. A deep blush rose onto the prince's face, and he coughed nervously as he took a seat opposite her. <clears throat> it, uh, it's very good to meet you, but that is to say, I am delighted. Um, Conaton began to ramble, uh, uh, privileged to set eyes on your beautiful countenance. He mumbled out, mentally hitting himself over the head. The princess smiled kindly at him, and I am glad to have such a handsome victor for my hand, she said. What is the name of my husband to be? she asked. Conaton cleared his throat, and with a bow said, <clears throat> Conaton from the kingdom across the river to the east, my princess. Then he hesitated and added, I have told others that I am not a prince, but this is not true. I am the son of the pharaoh, but I believe it best not to say right now. This intrigued the princess, who nodded, but did not press him further for answers. You may call me Mekatatan, she said, with a small bow of her head. The prince smiled. The princess rose and, going to the window, peered out. The men below gaped in awe at her beauty and the people of the city gathered to gaze at their princess, who rarely showed her face in public. That fine dog down there, is it yours? she asked. Conaton rose and joined her, grinning as he waved down at his companions, who began to cheer when they saw him. Yes, that's my dog, Ramesses, and my loyal friend and gardener, Fikara, and his men, and then those are some of the other nobles. Megatartan smiled and then laughed as the dog whooped around in a circle and chased his own tail before barking up at her. Kuanaten gazed at the princess with a small smile, and she, turning to look at him, blushed slightly at the intensity of his gaze. They started leaning closer to each other, when suddenly a great shout rose up from below, and they both jumped in shock. Kuanaten! cried the man who had raced back from the palace. Kuanaten! The king refuses to accept your victory and has ordered that you be sent back to your land. Kuanaten frowned, but before he could speak, Megatartan called out to the man. Good man, I ask you to go back to the king, my father, and convey to him this message from me. 
if he will not accept this man as my husband, and orders him away, that I shall refuse food and drink until I waste away into dust. Kuanatan uttered a cry of surprise, and tried to stop the princess, but she held up a hand for silence. Tell him, she continued, that a king who breaks his promises and lies to his people is not a king at all. The man below bowed, and set off immediately for the palace. Upon hearing this message, the king grew even angrier, and roared out to his palace guards to go out and kill the exile. The guards soon arrived at the princess's quarters, and ordered Kuanatan to come out and face his fate. The doors opened, and Kuanatan stepped out, but before the guards could attack, Mekatatan strode out and placed herself in front of him, her expression like stone, and eyes glittering so furiously at the guards that they looked hesitantly between themselves. Ramses too broke free of Nefakara's grip, and ran in front of both his master and the princess, hackles raised and mouth open in a gaping snarl. If you wish to lay a finger on my husband, then you must kill me first, Megatartan said loudly, her voice carrying clearly to the gathered crowd, who gasped and cried out for the gods to stop. The gods glanced between Kuanatan and the princess, and then at the growing crowd. Princess, began the head of the royal guard, but Megatartan drew a bejeweled dagger from the sheath strapped to her side. Or perhaps I should save you the trouble, and then you can simply inform my father of my death. The guards shook their heads rapidly from side to side, and lowered their weapons, before hastening back to the king's palace. Nikotatan smirked at their retreating forms, and sheathed her dagger once more. Kuanatan raised his eyebrows at her. I mean ever to cross you, my princess, he said with a grin. Nikotatan laughed, as Ramesses barked and ran circles around them. By the time the guards arrived back at the king's palace, the king had calmed down, and was beginning to reconsider his decision, as he thought over his daughter's words. She was right. What would the people think if he broke his proclamation? So when the guards relayed what the princess said, he quickly told them to bring the prince and princess back to his palace, and said that he merely wished to speak with the victor of his trial. When they arrived at the king's palace, Kuanatan and the king spoke for about an hour, and the ruler was so charmed by the young man's grace and noble etiquette that he could hardly believe that Kuanatan was not a prince. Come, tell me truthfully, the king said. You must be a prince, or at least royal blood must flow through your veins. But Kuanatan stuck to his story, and the princess did not betray him. Then the king drew his daughter aside, and spoke at length with her in private. At last he sat on his throne, and summoned his noble court. I was too quick to judge this young man before meeting him. He is noble, wise, and royal or not, worthy of my daughter's hand, he said proudly and she has expressed her wish to marry him, so I hereby declare that a grand wedding shall take place within the week. The court cheered, and Kuanatan bowed in thanks to the king, before smiling in Megatatan who stood by her father's side. And so a grand wedding took place, and twelve days of festivities occurred across the land, as the people celebrated their princess and their new prince. Many cattle were brought into the princess's palace, and other goods were left for the couple. Her palace was expanded, and soon they both took up residence in it, and many afternoons were spent dining and celebrating with the other princes. The Fakara and his guards were given their own quarters in the princess's palace, and Ramesses delighted in bounding up and down the long granite corridors, knocking into servants and roughing around with the children who played near the palace. On the evening of their wedding, as they lay together in the dark, Kuanatan told his wife about the prophecy. 
And so I am fated to die either by crocodile, serpent, or dog, he concluded solemnly. I am sorry to have tied you to this, he added. Megatatin was silent for some time, and for a moment the prince thought she may have fallen asleep. But then she whispered out, Can nothing truly be done? He shook his head, and she let out a small sigh. Why do you keep Ramses by your side, then? Why do you keep him when you know the prophecy? she asked, glancing at the dog who was curled up beside the bed. Ramses is my best friend, Cornarton replied. I know he'll never hurt me as long as he lives. If there is a hound I must fear, it is not him. Megatatin nodded, for she had seen how loyal the dog was, and had grown very fond of him herself. As he drifted off to sleep, Cornarton promised that he would be very careful, always have his guards with him, and a weapon strapped to him. But Megatatin slept uneasily that night, her thoughts worrying over what her husband had told her. After several happy and uneventful months, word arrived from the Eastern Kingdom that his father was deathly ill, and that his mother had summoned him back to see him before it was too late. When Megatatin heard this, her face grew dark with sadness and worry. Kuanatan took her hands in his, and kissed her forehead and cheeks tenderly. Why do you worry, my love? I have my guards and Ramses, and my own wit to protect me. I will be back as soon as possible. She sighed and allowed him to take her in his arms. I am with child, she whispered out eventually, so softly that at first Kuanatan thought he had heard her incorrectly. He drew back slightly and looked at her. You are with child? he asked. She nodded, and the prince let out a cry of joy, jumping happily across the room before sweeping her into his arms again. But why are you upset then? This is wonderful, he exclaimed. Make a doubt and but a lower lip and worry. What about the prophecy? I do not want my child to only know their father from my words and stories of him. Now you must leave, and who knows what may happen on your journey, she exclaimed, pacing the room anxiously. Conaton grew solemn and grasped his wife around the shoulders to stop her pacing. Then I will be as careful as humanly possible and return to you and our child well and healthy as soon as I can, he said. But I must see my father. I will not be able to live with myself if I do not. Megatatan nodded and held him for a very long time. Soon the prince was on the journey home, with all of his guards and his faithful dog Ramesses. Only Nefakara had stayed back with Megatatan, for the prince had ordered him to guard her and his unborn child with his life. The journey was long, and on the fourth night... They camped on the banks of a great river, and all fell into a deep sleep. As the crescent moon shone down intermittently from between the clouds, a large shadowed form made its way slowly and quietly out of the water and towards the sleeping party. Its yellow eyes were fixed upon the prince as it pushed its way towards him. The prince was dreaming of Megatatan, and a young boy who was running around her and grabbing her clothes, yelling and giggling and he was so enraptured with this dream that he did not hear or feel the tremors of the heavy footfalls of the crocodile. But one of the guards did, and opening his eyes, he spotted the crocodile almost upon the prince. With a furious cry, he sprang up and fell upon the crocodile, flinging his arms around it and holding it back from the prince. The other guards shot up and grabbed their weapons, and the prince quickly roused himself and took up his own weapon. Stab it! Stab it! cried the guard as he tried to hold on the crocodile. But the creature, with surprising strength and speed, threw the guard off into the river and dashed towards the prince again. The prince stabbed at the crocodile, and the guards attacked too, but some of their blows missed and others could not penetrate the tough skin of the beast. Save him! the prince cried out, 
pointing to the guard who was floundering in the deep river, being steadily swept away. The guards hesitated, but the prince cried out again, I said save the man! So two of them broke off, and left the other two to protect their prince. The crocodile dodged two more blows and snapped at the prince, his powerful jaws clamping down on the hilt of the sword, and narrowly missing his fingers. The prince held on, and pulled with all his might, while his guards, taking advantage of the distraction, circled the crocodile and stabbed at its side, finally slicing into the softer skin. The crocodile roared in pain and let go of the weapon, quickly slipping back into the river and vanishing. The prince collapsed to his knees, panting, while the other two guards arrived back from rescuing the one who had been thrown into the river. They all spent some time in exhausted silence and shock, and Kuanotan suddenly felt the weight of the prophecy bear down heavily upon his heart. They tried to pick up pace after that, but night after night, a crocodile will come out and attack. They tried to camp far from the river, but still they came. Soon it was not just one or two crocodiles, but three and four and more. Finally, when one of his guards suffered a mortal bite after throwing himself on the way, the prince ordered a retreat. They could not continue their journey, and even as they retreated to an abandoned stronghold not far from the first attack, the crocodiles came in their masses until they lay all around the building, waiting for the prince, and Kuanatan heard them chanting, and he did not know if he was going mad, for all he heard was, Do not run from your fate, little prince. You cannot escape. Do not run from your fate, little prince. You cannot escape. this was happening, the princess grew more and more worried, as she had not heard from Kuanatan since he had left, and, by her calculation, he should have arrived in his home city by now. Something must have happened, she told Nefakara, as she stood by the window of her room, and gazed out past the walls of the city. The loyal trainer sighed. He too was worried, but did not know what to do, for his duties were torn in two. His prince had ordered him to stay and guard the princess, but his pharaoh had ordered him never to leave Kuanatan's side. We must go at once, Nekatatan said, calling for a servant to prepare some things. Nefakara hesitated. My princess, Kuanatan would want you somewhere safe, not out there. He broke off as Nekatatan stopped and fixed her gaze upon him. Her eyes glinted with steely determination, and he could tell that there would be no persuading her. He grimaced. I will prepare at once. By the time the sun was high in the sky, they had set off on two camels, and a donkey laden with supplies. After some days and nights, they finally arrived at the stronghold, and saw the path blocked by dozens of crocodiles. The camels let out noises of distress, and wanted to turn back, but their riders held fast. Megatatan gasped as she stared at the creatures surrounding the stronghold. Light from what must be burning torches shone out of the building, and they concluded that the prince and his men must have escaped there. Nefakara swore under his breath, before glancing apologetically at the princess. But she did not seem to notice, her gaze fixed on the creatures before them. She dismounted and walked a bit closer, ignoring Nefakara's urgent protests. Then, lowering herself to the earth, she drew several hieroglyphs into the sand, and muttered words which Nefakara did not understand. The hieroglyphs glowed purple, 
and a sudden gust of wind appeared to pick up the markings and spread them away. The head of the royal guard gaped at what had just taken place before him. He knew, of course, that magic existed in his land, for many magical folk witnessed the presentation of Kionaten. But he did not realise that the princess was capable of magic herself. Soon a great wind sprung up, and a funnel of sand appeared not far from them, whirling and twirling towards them. It gathered up some of the crocodiles as it went, and threw them far away into the sky, until finally the huge mass of swirling sand stopped in front of them, and materialised into a fearsome giant. Nefakara reached for his weapon, but Mekatatan stayed his hand with a shake of her head. She bowed low, and Nefakara followed her lead. Mighty one, I thank you for answering my call, and pray for rich blessings upon you and the mistress, she said, addressing the giant who bowed in turn. The mistress was in fact a fairy who had been present in Mekatatan's birth, much like those at Kuanatan's ceremony. She had blessed the princess with wit and beauty, and had taught her how to summon her help in times of need. Her help, evidently, came in the form of a towering giant. Turning toward the remaining crocodiles, the giant let out a ground-trembling roar and charged toward them, swinging his huge club left and right. Scaly crocodiles went flying all over the place, many landing with a splash in the river, and others with a bone-crunching thud upon the ground. Soon enough, the way was clear, and Kuanatan and Ramesses and the guards rushed out. Seeing his wife, Kuanatan let out a strangled sob and rushed to her, seeping her into his arms. It was only after that that he noticed the giant waiting patiently beside them. His eyes wide with shock, Kuanatan bowed. You have my thanks and undying gratitude for saving us and my wife, mighty one, he said. The giant nodded, and with a small bow to Mekatatan, dissolved into a wall of sand once more, and vanished. And so, after many embraces and some words of sorrow with the fallen guard, they continued their journey, now unimpeded. After another few days of travel, they took refuge in a city. The prince fell into a deep sleep, but the princess, restless from nausea and worry, lay awake. Suddenly she heard the deep growls of Ramesses. And sitting up, saw a dark patch in the corner of the room. Ramesses stood nearby, his hackles raised and ears drawn flat as he growled the dark figure. The patch seemed to elongate as it moved up onto the pillows on which they slept. Ramesses crouched low as if to spring up, but Megatatan put a palm up towards him, and he stilled instantly at her command. Slipping off the bed, she took up a bowl of milk from the table near the bed, her movement drawing the creature's attention. It lifted its head, and she saw immediately that it was a cobra. With a click of her tongue and a small wave, she ordered Ramesses to move out the way behind her, and slowly set the bowl of milk down. Attracted by the movement and smell, the cobra slowly approached the bowl, and flicked out its forked tongue to taste the milk. It liked the taste so much that it did not stop drinking until the milk was all gone. Then it collapsed to the floor in a heavy sleep, for it had drank so much milk. Mekatatan slowly crossed the room to where her husband's sword hung, and drew it carefully out of its sheath. With two steps and a firm swing, she decapitated the cobra, the sword clanging against the floor and waking the prince. What? he said sleepily, taking in the scene before him. Ramesses sniffed the cobra's head before leaping up and licking his master's hand. Mekatatan picked the cobra up, collected its head, and threw both out of the window with a brief look of disgust. Kuanatan gaped at her in awe and shock as she wiped the blade casually and returned it to its sheath. 
Surely you are the most fearsome and clever warrior that Egypt has ever seen, he said, taking her hands and pressing them to his forehead. She laughed at his words, but her hands shook from what had just occurred, and her husband, realising this, drew her into his arms and murmured words of comfort and gratitude until she had fallen into a deep sleep. Eventually they reached the prince's kingdom, only to find out that his father had passed away early that very morning. The entire city mourned for their pharaoh, and Kuanatan's mother was beside herself with grief. Kuanatan took over the funeral arrangements, and, with Mekitatan's help, organised a grand service to see his father peacefully into the Duat. Then came his formal ascension as a new pharaoh, and for some months he was very busy with matters of the throne, spending whatever time he had with his wife and with his mother as she slowly came out of mourning. Eventually he saw fit to leave some matters in his advisor's hands, and went away with Mekitatan to a royal house near the river to recuperate. One morning he left his queen asleep in the house, and went out hunting with Ramesses. They were running after some game at full speed, when his foot caught on a log and he fell face first into the dirt. Swearing profusely, he got up and dusted himself off, only to freeze when the log yawned and spoke to him. You cannot escape from me, young pharaoh, it said. I am your fate, and no matter where you go or what you do, I will follow unto the prophecies fulfilled. Then suddenly, Kuanatan realized that the log was a crocodile, and his blood ran cold. The crocodile blinked at Ramesses, who was barking furiously at Kuanatan's side. Of course there is one way to avoid your fate, it said, eyes gleaming maliciously. But it is impossible, so may as well let me devour you now, hmm? It added opening its drawers wide. Wait, shouted Kornaten. Tell me what this method you speak of, he demanded. Closing its drawers, the crocodile huffed. Very well. If you can dig a hole in the dry sand and fill it with water that never dries up, then the prophecy will be broken and you will be free. If not, then I will be your fate. And with these words, it slowly dragged itself off. For an hour or two, the young pharaoh sat on the bank, and thought over how he could achieve the seemingly impossible task, but he could not figure it out. He walked sadly back to the house, and locked himself in his private room, thoughts full of his wife and unborn child, and his mother who would be left without her husband and son. Finally, after being turned away many times, Megatartan knocked once again on the door. Kuanatan, if you do not open this door, I will force it open myself, and don't you dare think I won't. I do have a giant I can summon again. Of course that summoning can only be used once a season, but he didn't need to know that. At last the door was unlocked and Kornaten stepped aside to let his wife into the room. She immediately noticed his pale and drawn face and watery red eyes. She took his hands and drew him to the bed. What is it, husband? Do not hide your worries from me. And so Kornaten told her what the crocodile had said. It will only be a matter of time before he comes back for me, he said. I wish I could have seen my child, he added in a whisper, laying his hands gently on her slightly swollen belly. But Megatotten clapped her hands loudly. If that's all, then do not worry. I know exactly what to do, she cried out. The mistress, the fairy who taught me that summoning spell, also told me about a small four-leafed herb that grows not far from here. It'll keep water in the hole for a whole year. I will go now and look for it. You stay and dig the hole so that we can fill it as soon as possible she said, getting up and immediately setting about preparations for the journey. But Kuanatan dashed after her. You can't go on a journey like that by yourself, Megatatan. Not while you're with child, he insisted, trying to stop her preparations. 
but she smacked his hands away. Hush, I am perfectly capable, be we spoken or not, and I will not stand here and see you eaten by some scaly stupid beast just because of a prophecy, she exclaimed. Going out and gaped at her for some moments, and then drew her to him and kissed her many times. You are truly incredible and formidable, and as stubborn as a donkey, he said. And she granted him a laugh. Yes, I am. Let me go instead, then. Tell me what it looks like, and I will bring it back, he insisted. But she shook her head. There are similar plants, and you may mistake it. I have seen it before, and will be able to confirm that I am bringing the right one. You can't risk a mistake. And so, with a heavy heart, he saw her off on her journey, before returning to the bank where he started to dig, while Ramesses kept a watchful eye out for the crocodile. Makatatan rode west, away from the river on her donkey. The day grew hotter and hotter as the sun made its journey across the sky. There was sand as far as the eye could see, and eventually the water they had carried ran out. But as she needed to continue on and be back with the herb by nightfall, otherwise the crocodile would arrive to fulfil the prophecy, she patted the donkey encouragingly and dismounted to give it some relief, walking beside it as they pushed on. Finally, after what seemed like days but were only a few hours, a huge rock came into view. Megatartan was overjoyed and ran the last few metres towards it, forgetting all about her thirst. The donkey finally took its rest under the shadow of the large rock, but the young queen could not. The four-leafed plant grew at the very top of the rock, and all around the rock ran a yawning chasm. Using a rope she had brought, she tied a loop at one end and threw it across the gap, but it fell into the ditch. Gathering her strength, she threw it across again, and this time it snagged on something she could not see. She tied the other end to a firm part of the rock and tested the rope. It held. She had to simply put her trust in the gods that they would see her safely across and back. If it snapped, then, well, the fate of three lives would be sealed that day. Slowly but surely, she crept and dragged herself along the rope. Her muscles strained and screamed as she forced herself along, but she made it across unharmed. Then came the true challenge. The rock was a steep climb, with difficult holds for her feet and hands. She placed her foot on the nearest ledge, and was about to push herself to the next point, when it crumbled under her, and she fell down to the foot of the rock, almost plummeting entirely into the chasm. Mekatatan pressed herself against the rock, panting and gasping. Her eyes screwed shut, and waited until her heart returned to a normal pace. By the time she opened her eyes, it was past noon, and her heart folded with despair at the task before her. She held her hand to her stomach, and took several deep breaths. Now was not the time to give up. And so, with another deep breath, she pulled herself up and looked at the rock and around it for a way up. Finally, she spied a small, sturdy-looking rock above the ledge. Climbing slowly up stones that lay between, she made her way up to the rock, and then upwards and onwards. At last, with torn and bleeding hands, she reached the top, only to be buffeted by such strong winds that she was forced to lie down low and grasp about for the life-saving plant. For what felt like hours, her heart pounded so loudly she thought it might erupt from her chest. She felt nothing but sand and stone and grit. But then, there, inside a small crevice, she felt the softness of a plant. Slowly, struggling to calm herself enough to count, she began counting the number of leaves. One, two, three. No, it could not be the wrong one. She took a few slow but sandy breaths and counted again. One, 
three, four. Yes, this must be the one. Hands shaking, she plucked the plant and began to climb down, but lost her grip halfway down and stood the rest of the way. Surely only by the will of Ra did she not fall to her death in that chasm. With shaking hands, she looked at the plant and breathed out a sigh of relief. It was the right herb. Summoning the last fragments of her strength and wall, she climbed back on her rope, the plant tucked safely in a pouch strapped to her waist. Her hands bled onto the rope, but she ignored the burning pain, and eventually reached Donkey once more, who brayed in joy and relief at her return. Eager for home and water, the donkey set off at such a pace that it barely felt the hot sand beneath it or the weight of the tired woman atop it. Finally, as the sun was about to begin its journey into the underworld, Mekatatan arrived on the banks of the river, where they found Kuanatan and Ramesses waiting for them. Kuanatan sprang up and ran to his wife, heart tight with worry, as he saw her torn, bloody hands and felt her body sag against his with exhaustion. Tears fell from his eyes as he held her gently against him. Come, let me see your hands, he whispered, taking a rag and a bucket of water to clean her wounds. Although worried about the setting sun, she allowed him to gently clean and wrap her hands. He pressed her hands to his mouth and murmured a prayer to the gods. Eventually she reached into the pouch and took out the herb. Come, let us finish this. He followed her and slowly poured a large pot of water until the pit was full to the brim. Not far away lay the crocodile, watching them with his glinting eyes, his mouth open to display his yellowing teeth. The young queen quickly laid the four-leafed plant atop the water where it floated. There they all stood, a curious group, the young pharaoh and his queen, the dog, and the crafty crocodile. For half an hour they stood watching the water, but not a drop disappeared, and at last the crocodile huffed and retreated back into the river. Kuanatan let out a cry of joy and relief, and picked his wife up, spinning her around and around. Mekatatan laughed out and kissed him many times, but Ramesses jumped and bounded and leapt, excited by their cries. Suddenly a bird erupted out of the nearby foliage, startled by their cries, and flapped its wings right in Ramesses' face, making him lose all sense as he chased it right into the deep waters of the river. No, Ramesses! cried Kuanatan, who, without thinking, dove into the river to save him. Mekatatan cried out in horror as he swam after his loyal hound, who was trying to swim but failing. The pharaoh managed to reach his dog, and holding him against his chest with his head out of water, began to swim back, but quickly went under when his foot got hooked in the masses of tangled reeds and rushes, sticky with mud. Mekatatan screamed and dove in after them. She swam down and, spotting the tangle, took a dagger from her side and cut at it. Kuanatan grabbed hold of Ramesses and held him out of the water as best he could, while holding his own breath. She slashed and slashed until the sharp yank of his leg, Kuanatan broke free, and they all rose to the top, gasping and panting as they swam back onto the shore. Ramesses laughed at their faces in gratitude and barked happily at them. The young pharaoh and his young queen gasped and laughed and planted kisses on the silly old dog's head and held each other tightly until the sun set and the moon rose. And so Pharaoh Kuanatan and Queen Mekatatan lived on for many years, welcoming three sons and four daughters into the world, and seeing their kingdom into a golden age. And Ramesses, that loyal and silly old dog, lived to see at least three of his master's young children, before making his own way into the Duat. And that is the tale of a prince who was fated to die, but who married a woman who was stronger than fate itself.
that is the end. I really enjoyed that story, I must say. I took many, many liberties with the story, which was sourced from the Brown Ferry book by Andrew Lang, uh, written in 1904. The narrative involving the birth scene was completely invented, and the character of the queen and all the interactions as well. The pharaoh was fleshed out quite a bit, and I created the role of Nifakara. I also added more to Ramesses the dog because I love doggos, and I named all the characters, since in the source story, they were all unnamed and simply went by prince, princess, etc. Although I kept the general storyline of the princess the same, I expanded her role and created the meeting scene between her and the prince, and added a bunch of details in the description of her facing off the guards. In the source story, during the first encounter of the crocodile, a guard does spot the crocodile and traps it in a large hall, where a giant who seemingly pops out of nowhere watches over it. Then it gets a bit confusing because for a reason not fully explained, the prince is forced to stay in this town where the crocodile is trapped, and only after his wife joins him does he continue his journey. This just didn't make sense to me, um, and the giant also fell out, of, fell out of place, but a proper introduction, so in keeping with the magical theme, I attached him to the princess's canonical fairy godmother, as Lang calls her, um, and changed it so that the princess came and helped fight off the crocodiles. Anyway, there were a bunch of things I expanded and altered, including that in the source tale, the dog drowns, which I could not stand, but I don't want to bore you any more than I have with all these changes. I hope you've enjoyed my version of this lovely ancient Egyptian tale, and that you go check out Andrew Lang's version as well. This episode's podcast shout-out is to the History of Sakat Velo Georgia podcast, and uh, I hope I pronounced that right. This podcast is simply fascinating as it breaks down the history of Georgia, a country that lies at the crossroads of Europe and Asia. I personally knew nothing about Georgia, so it is a delight to learn from this pod. For reasons I don't think I have to explain, I love the law and myth-focused episodes of this podcast, so both history and myth lovers will enjoy this. Anyhow, enough of my yakking. Here's the pod trailer itself. Gamarjoba, my name is Roberto, and I would like to sincerely thank you for taking the time to check out my podcast, The History of Sacartvelo, Georgia. In all likelihood, I would venture to guess that you found us because you were searching for either podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs about the history of Georgia, or you're hearing this on another podcast, like this one. I'm both sorry and happy to report that this beautiful and fascinating country is, to my great surprise, criminally underrated in the history world. As of now, this is the only podcast I am aware of dedicated to the full history of a nation and a people that have served as the battleground for empires all throughout European and Asian history. But the land of the Kartveli is so much more than that. The birthplace of wine, the second Christian kingdom, the land of fantastic food, nearly superhuman dancers and musicians, and perhaps, most importantly, a people that have preserved their culture, pride, and independence after centuries of one conquest after another. Empires rise and fall, but Sakartvelo always seems to survive in the end. So, let us celebrate this beautiful land by coming with me on this journey from prehistory to the present day, right here at the History of Sacartvelo, Georgia. You can find us on our website, historyofsacartvelo.com, or on Twitter at history underscore Georgia. Sacartvelo is spelled S-A-Q-A-R-T-V-E-L-O. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. And now I must love and leave you. Legendary Africa is produced and edited by the incredible K9 and Co, edited by Hestia the Dog and Athena the Doggo, and hosted by me, the Shirapaba. Legendary Africa belongs to the Fantastic Story of Strange Network, so check them out. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave a review on Apple, Spotify, Podchaser, 
over a weekend. And remember to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at legendarypod1 and legendarypod. Share with your friends and family. It's the best way to support indie podcasters like me. Until next time, stay safe, stay sexy, and stay legendary. Bye! Yes, it is I, Squirt. I am your father. Uh, Squirt? Oh. What are you doing? It's time to pack up. The episode is done. I was just practicing. I've been watching a lot of Star Wars recently in preparation for the new Obi-Wan series. And Vader is a clear favorite. What a voice. What style. Nice respirator, too. Oh. Uh, okay, then. May the Force be with you. Shut up, Obi-Wan.